it was wild because picking this movie, I didn't realize that it takes place kind of a week before Super Bowl Sunday. Yes. It also featured Jennifer Lopez. Uh, And this year, 2020, the Super Bowl, uh, on the day with which we are recording about this movie, so it's getting really weird and meta, uh, featured Jennifer Lopez during the halftime show. So it was a weird confluence. God wants us to do this movie. I think so, Alfalfa. Alfalfa. I mean, yeah, you have to like read into your circumstances, right? Yeah. So I thought that was kind of a neat. That's always uh, fun. So hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where we get back to what we always do, and we discuss the films that you'll never discuss in Film Studies course, and Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight is definitely probably a case of that. Yeah, I don't... Ooh, yeah, we'll talk about it when we get to expanding the syllabus. I think you can make the argument, but... But that would depend on the course itself. For sure. It'd be a very niche kind of... but a noir thing or genres thing or... Yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely thing. got handles. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but it's it is unlikely. Uh, but I'm in, I don't know about you guys. I'm in the mood for love. Uh, man, I'm always in the mood for love. Yeah. So uh, here we are doing this thing. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I'm still Dalton. And we're still talking about movies. Here we are in the great year 2020, doing the good trash. Oh, the great genre. year. The great year. Oh, the great year. The first good year, I've been told. Oh yeah. By it's some. only February. Well, they also were saying it was the first good year at the end of 2019. So here we are. Yeah. Well, all right. I'm, I'm less optimistic. But anyway, we'll see what happens. Uh, nonetheless, uh, what we're going to do here on this show, in case you're tuning in for the very first time, is this is an analysis show, not a review show. And that does mean we are going to spoil things. And in a film noir-esque kind of film, the plot does matter some. A bit. And so if you have never seen 1997... Eights. Eight. Uh, thank you guys. You guys, You're very welcome. You guys all like anticipated my like. I don't actually know what the year is here. Um, well, I was close. When you're at your age, I know the oh. the mind starts to go. Yeah. <laughs> all right then. But uh, if you have not seen this film, I mean, you from, were a grown man when you were Oglin J Lo for the first time here. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I was 18. Yeah, I would have been turning 18 that year anyway. Yeah, so. you would have been. So wow. I'm getting close. Uh, so I would have been legal to date her. Uh, nonetheless. Um, and you would have been lucky. And I would not be eligible to date her because she likes older men, it turns out. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, this film, uh, we will be spoiling it some, but we're going to avoid that at the outset. We're going to have synopsis, thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which are going to be spoiler light. Uh, we're going to expand the syllabus in one section of the show in which uh, we might mildly tread our way into spoiler territory. But then we're going to go all the way there once we get down to analysis at the end of of the show, so I just want you to be warned, dear listener. So without any further ado, Dr. Arthur Gordon, let's hear that synopsis, please. All righty, Dustin DDS. Uh, the third Elmore Leonard story to be produced in a quick turn following Get Shorty and Jackie Brown comes from the then maestro of indie cinema, Steven Soderbergh, but he inherited the project from Barry Sonnenfeld. The tale focuses on two star-crossed lovers, prison bake inmate Jack Foley and federal agent Karen Sisko, who meet cute in a trunk. After Sparks Fly, a dangerous game of cat and mouse moves from the glades to the heartland. Nominated for two Oscars in editing and screenplay, Out of Sight was made for $48 million and brought in nearly $80 million worldwide in 1998. Huge hit. Nice. Huge hit. Very, very cool. For what it was. Yeah. You know, weirdly, I have seen bits of this movie. Really? I mean, maybe the whole thing, but I only really remember is Don Cheadle um, shiving that guy in, in his side. I had never seen any of this thing. And, uh, this and, is my second time watching it. But I didn't know what movie that was from. But yeah, I, I watched you just it. Like, had that vividly remember, like, I, oh, I, I just vividly remember Cheadle shiving a dude. Yeah, That's I, an image that sticks with you. I have That's, seen yeah, this before. So it's anyway, brutal shiving. Mm-hmm. it was a strange thing. So let's go ahead and walk right through those thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, though. That's okay. And Shall we? You, you gave me a face. I 
don't mean to. We're, we're both waiting for you to throw to one of us. Oh, well. Is that a critique of my looks? I, <laughs> yeah, that's the look he was giving you. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Arthur, do you like this movie? Uh, yeah, I, I, I really did. I, I love Ocean's Eleven. I, I like Steven Soderbergh quite a bit anyway. I think he's just a fascinating director um, be- between his just eye. Uh, you know, after this, you know, starting with Ocean's Eleven, he starts being his own DP on a lot of his films. Uh, and so I think he just has a fascinating eye. Um, and he's got this weird thing where he likes to do odd kind of stunt casting and, and build stories around stunt casting. And I think it's just a fascinating guy. And now he's working more with the iPhone and doing things like that. And mm. so he's just always been an interesting filmmaker to me. And he's had that from inception with sex lies and videotapes, which I haven't got around to, but it kind of kickstarts the whole Sundance indie cinema boom uh, in the late eighties there. Uh, and out of sight really is interesting because it kind of comes a couple years after, uh, I think Grey's Anatomy in 96. And he's, uh, I think really probably doing his first big mainstream movie here with Clooney, who is on the upswing as well and JLo. Uh, so you've really got a, a trio here of up and coming. Yeah. But Clooney's in a weird spot too. Yeah, like Batman I mean, and Robin has just bombed, but yeah. he's still a hot commodity coming off Clooney, the ER. Yeah. yeah. So it's an interesting, I think, dynamic uh, at play there. Uh, and there's a, a lot of the precursor to what you see in Ocean's Eleven, mm. uh, just the visual flair. He, I, I can't remember who's shooting this. It's not him, but he, he does have a, a cinematographer here working with him. Uh, but he's still, it's got that visual style that we kind of come to know and love and that, that merging of the avant-garde, new wave, uh, visual flair uh, with a classical style. I mean, the, the movie itself, the way it's shot, the, the, the structure of it feels very classic Hollywood, I think, very screwball comedy. Yeah, sure, um, sure. And he's just kind of marrying these classic styles, this foreign avant-garde cinema, and and rolling it into something very dynamic, I believe. And Clooney's, I mean, I love Clooney. I, I think he's the one of the most charismatic. Him and Denzel, probably the two most charismatic actors working. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's just this, he oozes charisma, I think. And it, I, I it, he could probably walk up to you and shoot you and you'd still like it. I'm so yeah. sorry. I'm so sorry to get in the way of your bullets, Mr. Yeah, Clooney. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, he's just got that personality and, and JLo is great here. Uh, and th- their chemistry is just off the charts. Uh, that trunk sequence is the steamiest thing I've seen <sighs> in a long time. Yeah. Ugh. uh, and the decision to light that in red and it's just incredible to watch. Uh, and then they follow that up with the, the, the bathtub night. The uh, bathtub dream. dream is so hot. Yeah. I, I mean, just back to back, just dynamite sequences. Out of control, this movie. Um, just pushing. I mean, I, I, I don't remember the tabloids at the time, but I'm really wouldn't be surprised if there weren't those, uh, <laughs> Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper esque rumors <laughs> running rampant. I mean, because it's, it's rare that you see. Yeah. You I could, mean, you could have slid a blind item to page six and they'd have ran yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, they'd have uh, believed it. Somebody, I was, I don't remember if it was Priscilla Page or if it was another review I was reading, but they likened it to Bacall and Bogart, uh, and yeah, I mean, they've just got a great sure. chemistry. Uh, and so that all comes together and is very fun, very heartfelt, very uh, zany, kind of neo-noir, hard-boiled, star-crossed lovers, uh, slapdash comedy thing. Uh, and it really is a kind of a mastery, I think, of genre and tone. Uh, and then it's got a great performance from Steve Zahn, who yeah. comes in. I mean, we've got a great cast of, of oh, will-bees and have, have-beens, have uh, because we've got Steve Zahn, but Viola Davis shows up, Don Cheadle, as you mentioned, Bing yeah. Rames, uh, yeah. who yeah, I yeah, love. Bing Rames is yeah. great. Uh, is a blast, his buddy here. Um, and then, oh, Catherine Keener's uh, in there as well. I think one of her very earliest yeah, uh, I mean, credits, too. Yeah, yeah, and so, I mean, it's just a great cast all around. Um, and Albert Brooks as... as <laughs> 
Uh, is Dick the Ripper? Dick the Ripper. <laughs> oh God! Al, Al, when Brooks shows up with that hairpiece, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, just, it's so. Well, good. And, and what's her name from RoboCop? Is in there for like ten seconds. Yeah. 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 Oh my God! You holy crap! That was. I was like, I saw it. I was like, is that? It is. is. I can't think of her name now. I've slipped my mind. But yeah. 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 Um. Uh, sh- uh. Travis. Nancy Travis. Nancy Travis. There you go. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. Nancy okay. Allen. Nancy, Nancy Allen. Allen. Crossing my Nancy's. Yeah, well, it's a, it's like a, one of those last <laughs> names. Star-crossed Nancy's. One of those last names is the first name. And I, was, I was trying to think of Lewis, which is her character name in RoboCop. Gotcha, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's all I was stuck um, on. Yeah, I, I, I really dug out of sight. I, I, I think it's a really fun spot in Soderbergh's cinema, uh, filmography uh, of where he's going to go and where he's come from, and, and the same with Clooney and Lopez. I mean, I think it's a great performance from Lopez. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, setting her on a really interesting track before Affleck shows up. Um, and so, yeah, I'm nothing but uh, admiration for the out of sight here. Nice. Very good. Very good. What do you think of out of sight, Dalton? Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan. I, I was pretty lukewarm on this movie the first time I watched it. Uh, and part of that, I think, was just the hype around it. I was very, very excited to watch it. And for whatever reason, it didn't really land with me the, on the first watch. Uh, the entire time I was watching it this time, though, I just felt like an idiot for not liking it more the first time. Uh, because yeah, as Arthur has said, this is great. Uh, we we see uh, another. Uh, Arthur's talked a lot about some of the early Soderbergh touches we see here. Um, the the one that I really love is the the color palette shift uh, from uh, Miami to Detroit, and he'd play a lot more with that in Traffic a couple of years later. Uh, but. It, all the visual stuff aside, uh, I have said many times on this show that my barometer for good screen romances uh, is how much do we believe that these people want to get after it. And boy, howdy, as Arthur has said, do we believe that Clooney and, and Jennifer Lopez won a party. Uh, it's just, they're so good. It, it is uh, absurd how good they both are in this movie. This movie could have just been them two hours in that trunk. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And I would have watched every minute of it. And. Again, the dialogue is so good. The yeah. Dialogue, yeah, well, and we'll talk. Yeah. Oh, we're going to talk about the dialogue. Yeah, the the, the patter in ev- from every character in this film, and it doesn't uh, ever hurt when you're working from Elmore Leonard. Uh, he gives you a lot to work with in terms of that dialogue. Uh, that's why his his work gets adapted so much. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, the the way in which that dialogue plays between the two of them is so good because the dialogue only gets you halfway there. It is very much becomes a matter of do you believe uh, these characters. Uh, and I'm, what I'm about to say is going to sound a little bit like a backhanded compliment, but I very much don't mean it to be one. Uh, the characters in this movie all land like movie characters. Uh, and I, surely that does mean I'm, I, I'm saying that they're not all that well sketched out, but they land as instantly iconic. They're mm-hmm. all characters that you feel like you should already know everything about. They yeah. lay from, I mean, Steve Zahn, as you said, shows up and you're like, yeah, okay, I know Glenn. Glenn's this movie character. Right. I know Glenn. I know being, like every character that shows up is immediately identifiable as what kind of character they are in the film. And again, th- I think that might hurt the film overall in terms of uh, just its uh, ability to be remembered as something groundbreaking, obviously. There's no character here you've never seen before, but you are just seeing them all done so well and so interesting. Well, I think he gives them enough through the end of the movie. Yes, and that, that helps that. I absolutely agree. But I, I, we I could get that later. Oh yeah. To, yeah, but I, I just uh, Cheadle's character uh, is lacking nuance in some ways, and yet Cheadle just like immediately gets the dialogue for this character so well that you're like, okay, I I kind of do understand Snoop. I like I I understand that this this guy is really fighting against a conception of uh, of himself 
uh, with everybody he interacts with. And again, every character is like that. They're very much kind of an archetype in some ways, but they're just interesting and nuanced, and you understand what they want uh, in any given moment. Uh, This is is a film that is just never content to be one thing. Uh, It is always shifting genres and shifting tones, uh, giving you the weird and the absurd, reminding you how dumb crime is and how it's often failing upwards uh, on both sides. Both sides of the equation of cops and robbers is often failing upwards, and I I think it captures that that essence of this kind of uh, whip-smart, quick-moving story very well. Uh, I just want to close out by saying what an absolutely perfect ending uh, this film has. Uh, Yeah. It's an ending that leaves you wanting another two hours of movie. Yeah. And that's the best kind of ending you can hope for, really from any movie, but I would say especially crime films and romances. Yeah. I mean, those are kind of the two films you want your ending to really land. And seeing as how this movie is a rom-com and a crime thriller, uh, for it to land that plane so well, is it's just a treat. Yeah, it is. Uh, I was going to talk a little bit more about the sexiest sex scene that ever was, uh, but we can talk more about that when we talk about the editing, when we get into analysis, yeah, I think. fair enough. Uh, Dustin, uh, what do you think about this movie? It's good. I like it a lot. Uh, That's I, fair. Uh, yeah, we can I, leave it at that. I, yeah, it's good. I like it a lot. Um, there's nothing not to like. It, it is a film noir done in Technicolor, and it is doing that with all of those sort of whip smart. If I was channeling Billy Wilder and Double Indemnity, the whole movie, just that Barbara Stanwyck and going back and forth with uh, Fred really? McMurray. Uh, that, that's what I kept thinking. You know what I got a lot? What's that? I got Jonathan Demi a lot. Okay, close ups in this movie. Yeah, there's a lot of just so. And again, it just always and Soderbergh's a, a close up guy. And I've just never connected him to Demi, though. But watching this, it's just a lot of really good, tight face work. I was thinking more dialogue than style. But, yeah, you're, sure. you're totally right. You're yeah. totally right. Um, and so I just I love that. And I love their chemistry. And I love the way it works. And I love the labyrinthine sort of intricacies of the plot. I love the way in which he plays with time in a way that we, we have flashbacks sometimes. And sometimes it's chronological. And you have to sort of really work with it. I like, the, I like, I like a movie that makes you work for it a little bit and go, okay, when is this? Where is this? Why is this? And uh, sort of trying to piece it together. And it's all intelligible. Yeah. Unlike, say, The Big Sleep, which uh, when you watch it, you sort of know what's happening. But as soon as you get done watching it, you don't really know what happened, uh, except for how it ends. Right. And and so it it does a better job of landing the plane, as you were saying earlier, Dalton, there. But it's it's just so much fun, so much chemistry, so much great performances, and uh, just really, really well edited film. There's a reason why I got nominated Uh, for an Academy Award. And Coates uh, is the editor on this. And it's it's just some of the most astonishing work. It's incredible. Yeah. It's absolutely astonishing. It's, it's some great choices. So, yeah, love the movie. Uh, many, many thumbs up. So uh, there you go. That's where we're all falling. Regarding Out of Sight, let's go ahead and talk about expanding the syllabus. So you're teaching a class. This movie's part of that class. Uh, maybe it's part of a week. Maybe it's part of an entire class. I don't know. Tell me what the class is. Tell me what the module is and what you're doing with it, Arthur. Uh, this is a continuation of a class Dalton started a couple weeks ago when we talked Ad Astra, and he highlighted the career of Brad Pitt. I'm going to uh, do a star study of George Clooney, Ooh, uh, nice. uh, like the, the last movie star, uh, because I think you know he, they are somewhat contemporary in sure. a lot of ways. But uh, I, I, you said it, I think last when we talked Ad Astra that you know, or I've, I've read it, I can't remember, but you know Brad Pitt is a, a character actor in a, a leading man's body yeah uh, and and very much doing something almost different or unique every time he's out uh but Clooney's always Clooney 
uh, in that very Cary Grant sense. I mean, he he feels like a classic movie star in, in that regard. Mm. Um, when you go to see a Clooney movie, you know what you're going to get from Clooney. The movie itself could be a, a noir, a comedy, an action movie or what, but Clooney's going to be Clooney, much like Denzel is going to Denzel. Um, yeah, they they both uh, employ a, a lot of uh, glances that you you get to watch both you watch both these actors a lot. You'll see them kind of like recycle the same tricks in a much different way. Yeah, it's, yeah, they're both fascinating actors. Uh, and and so I'm I'm going to go uh, with that. I think I'm going to start with the Cordova's picture personalities to kind of highlight the star system and how that begins and By what that Larry means. Larry May, uh, is it Larry May? The Cordova. Oh, yeah, you're right. Decordova, you're right. Your thing is screening out the past. Screening out the past, yeah. Mm. Um, but uh, I'm going to go with Decordova's book. I think it kind of sets some groundwork of just what the star system is, how it formed, and why it's important, and how we can use it to study. Uh, and then I'm going to jump into Clooney's career. I'm going to start, I think, with ER. And I thought maybe a little bit of Roseanne as well, sprinkle some of that in mm. uh, prior to ER. Uh, but I'll probably do a few episodes of ER, maybe where he starts, where he exits the show. Uh, and then from there, I want to do From Dust Till Dawn, Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, nice. Uh, I think he shows just, up a movie star immediately in yeah, that film. Just, that, 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 well, he's playing kind of the same role as Out of Sight, I think. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. Very Super charismatic similar. bank robber. Charismatic right? and charmer. I mean, that yeah. is George Lee's just the charismatic charmer. No matter the movie, even when he's firing people in another movie on my, my syllabi, mm. um, he's that same guy. And I think that's fascinating. Uh, so we'll move from that early years into that more star period starting in the late 90s. Nine, nine, I'm gonna go with the Three Kings. Nice, uh, I love that movie. Which is just a lot of fun. We Three Kings be stealing the gold. <laughs> uh, and then I'm gonna go with the Coen Brothers. Oh, brother, where art thou? Uh, two kind of drastically different movies that show him off in different ways, but also reemphasizing just who Clooney is. Uh, and then we're gonna move more into a prestige period, and we're gonna start with Clooney, the director, and Good Night and Good Luck, nice. uh, where he does have a bit role, but it's it's all about Edward Murrow and and that whole thing, and it's a really fascinating film. And then we'll go with Up in the Air, Jason mm. Reitman. He's uh, so good in that. Mm-hmm. Very good. And then we'll kind of end with The, the Descendants, uh, Alexander Payne. Yeah. Um, and, and look at that and see kind of his career evolving. I mean, he kind of comes in a little older anyway. And so to kind of watch that, uh, you know, uh, evolve and progress, yeah. I think, is really interesting. The Descendants is a really interesting place to leave it to, Arthur, because he hasn't. I mean, that's 2009 that film comes out, 2010. I mean, it's, he's had a, the last 10 years, it's kind of seems like he's just enjoying taking some time off. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't need a, to work, he's I guess. a few things here and there, but yeah, I mean, the last three or four years, at, at least, you know. I wonder uh, if he's trying to he get... was in Hail Caesar. Yeah, that's true. But still, I mean, yeah. I can't think of much since then. That's kind of his biggest one over the last five years. Yeah. yeah. Maybe he's trying, I wonder if he's trying to get a movie off the ground to direct. That would Maybe kind of so. explain why he's gone off the radar. He's just drinking espresso down in Costa Rica or something, dude. Yeah. He's just chilling out. Sell, that's why he's on those commercials. Yeah. yeah. So we movies. would end the class with those commercials and drinking a nice the new cup espresso of espresso commercials. Mmm, yeah. <laughs> espresso. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What's your class looking like, Dalton? Well, we are going to be taking a dive into the Elmore Leonard verse. Uh, Ooh, my man. I am the probably. Probably the biggest Elmore Leonard fan who's never cracked open an Elmore Leonard book. Uh, Checks out. I know. I'll read more fiction one of these days, I promise. I always say I never read. That's not true. I read constantly. I just don't read any fiction. Audiobooks don't count. I, well, I don't listen to audiobooks either. I don't consume any. No. I don't consume They're literary correct. No, fiction. they don't. Audiobooks do count. No. <laughs> But uh, I have seen a lot of the works of Elmore Leonard that have made their way to the screen, and I am just fascinated by the stories that this guy lays out. It's not just his stories. It is his commitment to to dialogue that informs character in a, a really believable way for me. Um, so we are going to be taking a, a tour through his work. Um, I think uh, the best way to start is with some interviews. I watched a couple of interviews with Leonard today just to kind of 
I'll get a little bit more info on uh, how he works. Uh, and, and here's some fun quotes that I just want to start us off with. Uh, he uh, he says uh, he, he always has fun writing, which I think is fun. And if it wasn't, he wouldn't do it, basically. Uh, it was always fun. It has to be fun. And I wouldn't do it if it wasn't, which I, I just kind of love that. But he also says that, uh, you know, I'm trying to write a good book. And I, I'm trying to write seriously, but I'm having fun. I want to amuse people. Like, he, he goes in very much with the intent to amuse. And I think that you, it shines through in his characters and his dialogue. Uh, but yeah, I, I think he's an interesting guy. But we're going to go through the films uh, that I, I think are the most interesting uh, to kind of talk about with him. And so we're obviously going to be looking at Out of Sight, uh, but we'll also be looking at the film uh, based on Rum Punch from the year earlier, and that's Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown, uh, which has a little fun crossover in, uh, into Out of Sight that we haven't talked about yet. Michael Keaton shows up for one scene in Out of Sight as Ray Nicolette, his character from Rum Punch slash Jackie Brown. Uh, I like that. I like that fun kind of nod to... Uh, to, to the overarching uh, career uh, of Elmore Leonard because Karen Sisko, the, the lead of Out of Sight, J-Lo's character, will go on to have her own series uh, where uh, I think Carla Gugino, yeah, played her on a Gugino. I always whip her name. Uh, played her on USA. And then Karen Sisko uh, couldn't legally show up but kind of shows up in Justified, which is another show that... Uh, That's cool. Yeah, uh, which is another thing we'll be looking at. Mm. We've taken a couple look, uh, look at a couple episodes of Justified, uh, based on Fire in the Hole, uh, which gave us Raylan Givens, probably Timothy Oliphant's kind of uh, uh, the character that's probably going to go down as defining his career, I think, obviously just because it ran for six seasons and it was really critically lauded. Uh, but I, I think that that's another one that works. Uh, to kind of just look at Elmore Leonard uh, as a person interested in how Western tropes inform modern America. Uh, and I think Jackie Brown and Out of Sight both have a lot of this, and you can kind of look at uh, how that groundwork uh, works its way throughout his career and the things that he writes about. But Justified, obviously, is the big one. It's it's about a mo- modern-day uh, hat-wearing lawman uh, who tells people that they have, you know, 24 hours to get out of town. That's his whole deal. Uh, and and it, it's a, a character and a story that is concerned with a lot of the same things that Out of Sight is concerned with. It's concerned with class. Uh, it's concerned with gender. Um, and, and I think that is something that really speaks interesting, speaks really interestingly to Elmore Leonard's just interest in people, um, because it's easy to kind of write him off as this, this cowboy novelist, this crime novelist. Uh, but all of these stories, uh, that have been made from his works have just such a fascination with people and an understanding of interpersonal dynamics. Yeah. Uh, and that's why we'll close on the remake of 310 to Yuma. We'll go we'll lay the groundwork of his kind of like modern Westerns and then we'll go to the actual Western. Uh, and again, I think this is another film that is concerned with family dynamics, with class, with gender roles, yeah. uh, especially with the father son relationship that happens in three TM to Yuma. And you get the great Kurt Russell. I said Kurt Russell, the great Russell Crowe line, even bad men love their mamas, which is one of my favorite film lines. Uh, it's just a great cowboy line. There's no way that doesn't come from Leonard. Uh, and I think Three Ten to Yuma wasn't a book. I actually think he just wrote the the original screenplay for that one, uh, for the original film. He also worked a lot as a as a screenplay writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I, I think looking at these four works uh, show us a lot about Leonard. And I'm sure we'll find some supplemental readings to do as well to kind of like look at the the evolution of the old west genre. Uh, but again, I I think that's what always fascinates me is these these the the way he writes folksy smart is just uh, a lot of people try to do it and to measured success, varying success, but he's just got a, a mind for it that is really incredible. 
and, and it's easy to write cool cowboys. It's a lot harder to write cool cowboys and kind of give you a glimpse into the sad person underneath. And uh, I always feel like his characters do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's why I think he's an interesting uh, writer to explore in, in a class. Dustin, how are you going to teach out of sight? I'm also very interested in authorship and uh, particularly the auteur theory. And so first off, I will be assigning a textbook, and it is Mark Gallagher's Another Steven Soderbergh Experience, in which he questions those uh, issues surrounding auteurism, uh, the fact that it's collaborative, the fact that you might be watching a movie like Out of Sight, and clearly authorship kind of falls in the hands of both the editor and an Elmore Leonard. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's interesting how that all works. And so uh, we would begin probably with Sex, Lies, and Videotape, okay. which is sort of the most Soderberghian of the Soderbergh uh, universe. We would look it out of sight. Uh, then I think I'd move into like something like Ocean's Eleven yeah. and uh, talk about those sort of remakes and uh, what, what that all entails. And then maybe move into Unsane. Okay. Which is like yeah. a, 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 his, his iPhone horror film, yeah. which is a great movie. And again, sort of asking these questions about the mode and the means of making film, the way in which uh, you have more studio intervention or less. And then lastly, maybe HBO's Mosaic, which was an HBO series, but it's also a web series uh, with these uh, various trees. Yeah, our, our, our much delayed uh, Patreon uh, epic. <laughs> we'll still make someday. Someday. Someday it'll happen, and maybe it'll give me the excuse to finally get through and watch it if I were ever to teach this in a class. But just sort of asking those questions of who is the author and trying to identify those kind of creative uh, fingerprints well, as you're working your way through the, the filmography of a filmmaker. Yeah, and Soderbergh's interesting in that regard because he obfuscates it deliberately, right? Mm-hmm. Like he works as his own editor and cinematographer in a lot of his films and deliberately doesn't credit himself because I think he doesn't want to seem like an asshole. Right. So he just does like a variation on his parents' yeah. names. Uh, but that, yeah, I mean, I think even that idea introduces something interesting, right? Right. I don't need the credit for this. I just did it because it was expedient. Right. I'm curious about his decision on that. Yeah. And I think uh, Gallagher wrestles with some of that in the textbook. Does he? Okay. So, uh, I think that'd be interesting and just a conversation. I I guess it'd probably be a couple weeks. It'd be a module, uh, working through maybe sort of a standard film theory kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, is where this class might find itself located. But um, there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts, and your syllabus just got a lot longer. Let's um, get down to business. And defeat the Huns. That was really nice. Thank you for that. That was very nice. Uh, and that business is, as always, dear listener, analysis. So uh, there are many, many analyses uh, one might offer uh, for a film like this. Um, I don't have a whole lot that I'm bringing to the table currently, but I do want to mention, is this film, to what extent does this film fall in that great category, that elusive you know, category you, the of film, film noir. Yeah, this is the conversation we have literally every time that we watch a movie for That's this adjacent show. To adjacent to the genre. To film noir adjacent. So does it check the boxes? I think we can dispense with this very quickly. I think so. Yes, it is. And George Clooney's the femme fatale. Yes. Hom fatale. Yeah. Yeah, he's the hom fatale. Yeah. yeah. That's I, absolutely it. And it's the, the arc of, uh, is the, the law woman going to be seduced by the hom fatale? And if so, to what extent? Uh, and the other question is, is the Hom Fatale going to be redeemed, and if so, to what extent? Um, but yeah, I mean, it is a pretty standard noir story, right? Mm-hmm. It's I all think about so. the, the chase yeah. uh, and the money. And he gets what's coming to him in the end. He has to go to prison. He gets shot. I mean, it does have that kind of very coded Hollywood ending that you would yeah. have gotten, except mm-hmm. a little tease. A little, 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 little Sam little Jackson. And... Love. Sam Jackson is the the best actor to cast 
in if that. If you need to quickly establish in one like stinger, let's take the audience home scene. Who's the cool? Who's the guy you want in the Sam prison Jackson. transport van with you? It's yeah. Sam. Yeah. You want yeah. him. You're gonna feel safe. You'll yeah. figure it out. You'll get out together. It's great. It's a good. It's a good piece of cinema. Oh, it's so perfect. It's a great ending. Um, okay, so I want to move on to something more thematic, and I want to talk about race actually for just a moment. Um, because yeah, there's some weird stuff going on in this movie. I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff going on, but one of the things that seems to me uh, that that's a '90s ideal, and this is sort of a Clinton era kind of thing, mm-hmm. is that the '90s ideal of a post-racial society is utter color blindness. I think the best example is uh, the siege, mm-hmm. uh, where Denzel Washington helps uh, mm-hmm. you know bring martial law to New York. Uh, yeah. And his, you know, it's a film all about uh, the racial politics of policing, uh, specifically uh, terrorism from uh, Islamic extremism at that point in the, the 90s. And it, yeah, doesn't come up at all. Yeah. And it's super relevant. And it, yeah, it's a very 90s thing. Right. Yeah, especially and, 90s movies specifically. And so, I mean, you know, whatever 90s wokeness looked like is just, I don't care. Yeah. And we don't talk about the fact Don Cheadle's black. We don't talk about the fact that Ving Rhames is black or that um, George Clooney happens to be white or J-Lo happens it? to be Puerto Rican or it's just, yeah. it's just not I mean, an issue. Her and biggest her, arc is Italian. that she's a woman. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the thing holding her back. Yeah. It's not yeah. nothing to do with color of her skin, yeah. but she's a female, so she can't do the job. And that's kind of, look, there, there's a, a, a bit of that's nice, right? Like, we don't, I don't, it doesn't matter why Dennis Farina right. and Jennifer Lopez are like father and daughter. It doesn't yeah. matter. It's irrelevant. But the times it is relevant is the prison stuff. Mm-hmm. The, the minutia of like how crime works, of how uh, teams and crews get put together. Um, and I think we get a little bit of the, those that, those tensions. I think Soderbergh's smart enough to leave them in the subtext. I think right. of the scene with uh, Glenn, Steve Zahn's character, uh, in, in the back of the, the car that he stole. Yeah. Uh, because it, that's the one scene where it does come up, right? Like uh, Don Cheadle, uh, Snoop, I forget what his actual character name is. He hates that nickname. It's Marcel. Is it Marcellus? Maurice. Maurice, Maurice. yeah. yeah. He, he wants, he, he's Some very people ple- call me Maurice. He's very pleased with White Boy Bob being his driver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the scene where that kind of comes into the front of the text, yeah. right? Right, a little bit. But at the same time, White Boy Alabama Bob is in the crew, which that's is true. surprising. It's it, well, not uh, that surprising. Have you seen him? They need a heavy. Yeah, he's the heavy. Just right. like Clooney needs a heavy. Which is being Rams. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah. Buddy. Which yeah. I think it's an interesting mirror there in the gym when they all meet up for that first right. conversation. Yeah, I love that scene. Good scene. Uh, I, I think you're right, though. There, there's some st- uh, uh, Maurice's brother-in-law uh, is his... Oof, uh, his sexual menace uh, is gross, is, is yeah. gross, and it does. That's a moment where it does feel like the, the racial politics of the film are landing with a ominous thud. This the racial and sexual politics of the mm-hmm. film, really. Yeah. Like that whole final sequence. I, I think him being kind of lecherous towards Karen Cisco in that one scene is fine. I think that that works well enough to kind of establish his his menace and her capability. But yeah, all the stuff that goes down uh, when they get to Nancy Dick Allen. the Ripper's house. Yeah, yeah Nancy Allen. It's unsettling, and the and I know we've kind of very quickly pivoted from what you brought, Dustin, to kind of another issue with the film. They're they're linked intrinsically. Right, I, I think they like. are uh, because having th- that be the threat, right? Having the you know Alabama Bob, uh, white boy Bob, Bama Bob. <laughs> uh, he's he's you know he's the the red herring heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has his very funny death, and everybody laughs. We all have a good chuckle, but you know Maurice's brother-in-law is. A much more real heavy, and for, um, oh my god, uh, I just keep wanting to call him Clooney. 
Not important. Jack. Jack. Jack thank Foley. you. Foley. That's Not what to be confused with Matt Foley, which would have been a very different film. Very different movie. Uh, yeah, no, Foley's redemption arc being, oh, I I have to go stop a, a rape. That's what's happening now, right? Yeah. yeah. That's It's just an easy an easy moment of heroism to force him into. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure that comes from the novel. I know the novel's been rearranged a lot for this yeah. movie, but I'm sure that's like kind of how it goes down. But yeah, just the the whole way that, that plays out, just oh boy, it's gross, it's icky. It, 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 nobody walks away from that feeling like it went great. And I think Soderbergh makes the the staging of it as uh, I don't know, as palatable as it possibly can be. But boy, howdy, does it just it the film does not seem to uh, treat that menace with the menace that it should be treated mm-hmm. uh, and, and yet the menace that it does give it it feels pretty racist yeah for to not put too fine a point on it and again i don't think that's a this is what happens though this is as you said when you kind of go in with this this very 90s uh clinton era racial blindness you, you end up stepping in shit sometimes right. by by accident you, you do something that you know this is why diversity behind camera is important, so somebody can say, well, there's some tropes you're playing into here that kind of don't come across super great, bro. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I'm glad you brought that up, Dustin, because I think that component really does inform the last, the, kind of the finale, especially the little that last chunk of the third act. And, and you mentioned something about the watchability of the sort of rape prevention scene and whatnot. Yeah. And I remember having the thought about how uh, the editing works, uh, the narrative itself. I mean, Ving Rhames... Watchability uh, with palatability was what pa- I said. Pal- Watchability is a... F- pal- palatability. <laughs> and it does yeah. feel like the commercial version of Pulp Fiction in a lot of ways. A little big, yeah. I mean, it, it's, yeah. It, it's yeah. like studio Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Is is really very much what it feels like. So 1994's Pulp Fiction does this super edgy, super gritty, but also very funny, very whip smart dialogue, and also this sort of elliptical kind of editing. And uh, you know, again, you're trying to figure out your time and place. And it's much more intelligible than Pulp Fiction is. Mm. I mean, not that you have to draw a diagram necessarily for Pulp Fiction, but it, it's a bit more work to figure out what's going on. A lot on. more moving parts and characters, yeah. in Pulp for Fiction. sure, for sure. Well, and even uh, Jackie Brown again. Both of these guys being the Sundance darlings of the early '90s, both tackling Elmore Leonard in the late '90s. It is interesting how that that lines up. And uh, but what I, I do feel like Soderbergh does sort of. I'm not going to say sells out, mm-hmm. but he definitely commercializes uh, in a way that Tarantino's not. Yeah, here. I think I don't know. I think he finds a way to put his thumb on it, and I, I think this is as good a time as any to kind of pivot to some of the form of this film mm-hmm. um, because you're right I mean I, I think uh, th- that ending is commercial there, mm-hmm. there's a big heroic ending uh, everybody goes home happy um, well we'll talk maybe more about the the final showdown between Karen Cisco and Foley well actually what yeah. I was thinking about mostly was the uh, murder scene uh, with Steve Zahn and how it's edited in a way that you don't really see what yeah. goes down it's a little too nice but in a Tarantino film um, that's not the way it would have been shot. Well, yeah. I'm thinking about Ving Rhames being yeah. raped. Yeah, but yeah. I, yeah. I, I think Soderbergh knows that that's not the tone of the story. Mm-hmm. I think he knows that that scene has to be implied because if he shows you a violent attack, it really does kind of... I mean, we, we're turning on Glenn as an audience no matter what because of his culpability in that moment. But yeah, I think if you show it, I, I get what you're saying. It does make it more commercial to not show how bad the crime happening in the margins of the fun crime is. 
but I understand the choice, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But the, the, yeah, there's a, there's basically a hate crime that happens yeah. right there that Steve Zahn's complicit in. Yeah, I, I I wonder how much of it just comes down to. I mean, Soderbergh's working in this in the studio here mm-hmm. with Universal rather than yeah. you know. I mean, Tarantino's doing whatever he does with Miramax and mm-hmm. and, and getting things done on kind of on his own terms. I think more so than Soderbergh probably has leeway to do uh, at this point. I mean, this is a project that was greenlit before he was involved yep. right and so you know the script was done before he was involved so one has to wonder you know he's able to leave his mark on it visually i think but, well and that's what i was about to say i know. think he does find that room to leave his, his mark on it both with the rearranging of the story uh i guess the bank robbery that lands fully back in jail happens about midway through the novel out of sight yeah. um which I, I learned from reading that priscilla page uh article i was gonna say essay but yeah article that you, you sent arthur um yeah, it, it, I think that's a that's a really interesting choice to kind of move the real dramatic tension, the the fun stuff, to move the relationship to the front of the film, foreground it, make that the beat of it. Uh, but also this this kind of voyeuristic stuff that Soderbergh always does in his career, that kind yeah. of off kilter framing for conversations, not doing that kind of standard shot reverse shot stuff for conversations, letting them be uh, kind of offset onto characters, letting you be a third voyeuristic participant in all the conversations and. Uh, I think the freeze frames help with that too. There's kind of the heighten these moments that yeah. are supposed to land with you. Yeah. Um, and again, that, that kind of voyeuristic stuff we're talking about, which I think is part of why uh, the, the implied or um, threatened sexual violence in this film does land uh, so tonally icky and off for me is because so much of the film, and again, that's Soderbergh t- trademark or uh, touchstone is that, that voyeuristic tone that so many beats of the film have that i don't know maybe that's why like it lands even grosser for me i was just gonna say i don't i mean i don't think soderbergh's relationship with sex and violence lines up the same way tarantino's does it's no, so it different not. Yeah. yeah yeah i don't i mean I know there's no sex and sex lies in videotape for instance. Say, yeah. i was just saying I mean, he's not a, i mean from what i've seen i mean there's those kind of areas of blind spots in the yeah. early 90s and, yeah but i mean just not a really violent filmmaker that I can recall. I mean, Traffic, maybe. I haven't seen it, though. Yeah. But, um, uh, which is, you know, kind of a much different, you know, Tarantino's raised in that kind of uh, cinematic violence, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what fascinates him, I think, in those conversations about violence. And I think uh, Soderbergh's much more interested in watching events unfold and the people involved. And so I think that's putting those sorts of moments in the films. Maybe he doesn't have quite the nuanced hand to pull them in as well as another filmmaker might or or utilize them in such a way as a Tarantino to be able to say something more than what's on the page. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I like the way he does use violence here. Um, the, the the shiving, as Dustin has already mentioned, that happens early in the film. Is, that is it's really bad. gross. It's not that graphic, though. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a pretty non-violent blood spurt you get uh, the, the, compared to the violence that happens later on in the film. Uh, it's not not super graphic, but the the shooting of it is very intense. Mm-hmm. Like they they sell the chaos of that moment in a really palpable way, uh, and I think the the humor of uh, chaos, uh, the 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 role chaos plays in crime is taking place in this film is so so funny and weird and clever and just like the the weird things that happen. Like uh, I, again, I think the best example is is Bob Bob tripping on the stairs when they first get to the mansion to kind of set up him tripping on the stairs later on and, and shooting himself. It's just this weird, it's a very Elmore Leonard thing, right? I mean, his, his stories are full of just like characters accidentally killing themselves because when people are walking around with loaded firearms and they're not being careful, accidents happen. Mm-hmm. And I love that just touch of like, yeah, 
crime's dumb. People are dumb. All people are dumb, and when people commit crime, dumb things happen. Yeah, and that's another one of those moments that brought me back to Tarantino, because like, oh, it I is just shot violent. Marvin in the face. I, man, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, here's what I'll say, though. I think this, uh, the violence of I shot Marvin in the face is, lands comedically. The white boy Bob trip and like the head squib is gross. I laugh. It's nasty. Real hard, though. It's funny because <laughs> I'm a I monster. I gasped and I like guffawed. I yeah. did a get like because <laughs> I'd kind of forgotten. I'm the only normal person at this table. Like, yeah, I was I no, really I was shocked hard. by it. I I was also laughing because yeah. it does land comedically. Like because it, it just has Foley. His reaction shot is yeah. so like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> just, like, well, yeah. uh, I guess this is back to business. All right. <laughs> It's such a weird moment, and again, this this movie is filled with weird moments. Like uh, when Louise Guzman shows up to Catherine Keener's place, that I whole sequence Louise is Guzman. so he's so funny in this movie. Uh, also, the amount of times he says, uh, I, I, ooh, "I don't know if I want to say the Spanish c word," so I'm not going to. But mm. boy, he says it a lot, and uh, that really feels like Louise Guzman messing around, knowing that the studio's not going to know how dirty that is. Yeah, uh, I kind of love that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, whether it's you know Glenn getting uh, startled when they show up because he had to smoke a joint before they they met up for the car, like this movie is filled <laughs> with characters just making bad choices and right. like watching how those bad choices kind of unfold and inform the plot is so interesting, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, what uh, are some other major thematic things you guys want to talk about? Well, I think staying on form, I think it'd be interesting. Dalton already kind of mentioned it much earlier in the film, but talk about the male gaze. And that I think the sex scene, but I think just in general, because I, I never really felt that sex scene is greatly sh- edited. I mean, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I just, but I think J Lo, through I mean, I think her and Clooney are equally presented as very attractive people and costuming thing. You know, he fills out that suit very nice. She has mm-hmm. this very nice uh, Chanel suits and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I never felt like hypersexualization, uh, at least on her part. I could, I mean. I mean, yeah. and even in the moments where in the, during the sex scene when she strips down, it doesn't feel like the camera's lingering too much in, in certain ways. It's yeah, it's because there's a certain amount of class to it. Yeah, it, I agree. It, it doesn't feel like I mean, J Lo is obviously super attractive uh, and was a huge pop star. Is and especially in the late '90s was like it's an easy choice, right? Uh, and I think it's a smart choice for a director. And it's uh, I'm going to go ahead and give her credit too because uh, when you walk into a film as an actress and you're already a uh, a superstar. I don't, I don't. I'm curious how that relationship works. A little more. I don't know. I'm very curious. But anyway, that aside, I think it's the right move for the movie to make. It, it's mm-hmm. it's an easier, dumber filmmaker who says, "I'm gonna let my camera be lecherous on this pop star while we have her." Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a smarter, more interesting film that says, "Yeah, Karen Sisko is a fox," but that's not the most interesting thing about her. Yeah. Well, I just love how the scene plays with time. I mean, I love that the scene opens yeah. with the pretend, like we're going to pretend to be two different people and have this like pretend conversation. Well, the thing that they'd already talked about yeah, earlier yeah. on in the film, yeah, and, and so then and then they break it, you know, and like, oh, come on, let's not get real just yet. Yeah, I mean, that sort of moment is, is fantastic. Yeah, cool. But as the conversation goes on, you Start begin to flash forward what's going to happen. They're going to end yeah. up, at and the it hotel wasn't written room. that way, which I think is fun. Ann Coates and Soderbergh together, kind of like uh, they both give each other credit. Uh, I've seen in interviews where they were just kind of playing around with it, and they just, uh, the freeze frame uh, during the sex scenes and Ann Coates touch, it was like the last freeze frame that was added, which I think is really cool. It's brilliant, yeah. Oh, I, like so the, I like the uh, the voiceovers when they're they're obviously having conversation, but they're not saying anything, but there's voiceover yeah, right. from, from, what, from, from the, the bar, earlier. That, when yeah. they're in the hotel room, yeah. yeah. That pre-lap dialogue. Another Soderbergh touchstone. Yeah, yeah something he uses a lot. But yeah. in this scene, it just works so well because yeah. so much of this movie is is that sexual tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, they don't have that many scenes together. They have fleeting glances and phone conversations, but it is really Random the moment in the trunk. 
elevator. elevator. Yeah, the, it's it, a great bin. it is the yeah the that chemistry of the trunk has to sustain the film yeah. to this point, and it does so so well. And for I mean, this scene again is this is kind of for me why I didn't like the movie that much the first time. I think because of the culmination of their relationship, like at or the the consummation of their romantic relationship, like right there at the end of the second act. For me, the first time, it kind of did take a lot of the dramatic tension away because, like, all right, well, cool. They, they, they got they're, together. That's all together. I wanted to happen in this movie. Right. Uh, but I, I think on this watch, I really did appreciate more, like, how much more there is to it. Uh, and maybe we can get to that final standoff again that, that we've mentioned. But I, I'm right there with you. That overlap is just, it's so great. It's so sexy. It's its so interesting, too. Like, its it, as Arthur said, their chemistry is undeniable. Yeah. Uh, but it, the the back and forth of the dialogue that that's not quite out of the realm of naturalistic, but is still just the right amount of high. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's incredible. Well, it makes me love them as characters so much that I want out of sight too, out of sight harder. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so yeah. much further out of sight for, for even you know, further on the horizon yeah. you know, with, with, with Sam Jackson. And, oh and yeah, you know, I want that movie, man. That's I, the thing. That's what I meant by laying in the plane. Like immediately you want, I cannot believe they didn't make an out of sight sequel. I mean, $80 million. Am. How did that not happen? I don't, Anyway, not important. Yeah, well, Elmore Leonard might have something to do with that as well. No, I don't that's know. true. R.I.P. By the way, we've been talking about him a lot this episode. Yeah, he's a great guy. All right, any other uh, last thoughts on uh, Out of Sight before we move on to a verdict? Well, I do want to go ahead and talk about that final standoff. Oh, let's do that. Yeah, because I think it is a great moment. It is that that moment of uh, of Karen saying Karen's line, "You won" to Jack. I think is really interesting because I. I don't know the the depiction of law enforcement and law and order in this film is very interesting. Like mm-hmm. uh, Karen Cisco is very kind of single minded in her belief in the law, and it's very hard for her to understand how Jack Foley is who he is. And it's only by uh, you know him kind of being like, "Yeah, I've only ever robbed banks. What was I going to do? You were only ever going to be a cop. Your dad's a cop. My dad was a bank robber. This is how Destined life works. To. Exactly. It's like nobody chooses their role in life. How could you believe that? That's foolish for you to believe that. And again, he's not condescending about mm-hmm. it. Like, and that that would be a a less interesting character note. But it is just kind of he understands this as fact. Doesn't really know how to articulate it, and kind of presents it as a you're either going to get this or you won't. Uh, and and I, I don't know the choice that Karen is always thinking it's a game is really interesting to me. And then that moment where she says uh, you won. Uh, I think it's really nice because he goes out thinking he's going to get her to kill him. He really does want Karen to murder him. And I, I love the, that's kind of why I feel like he gets let off too easy with his big hero moment of stopping an assault because he's trying to get his, this, this woman who feels very strongly for him to do a murder on him. He wants her to live with that. And it's an, it's another moment yeah. where I'm a little annoyed with Jack Foley. Yeah. Uh, but it is her saying you won, I think is really interesting. Her admission of defeat is like, Buddy, you're not as hot as you think you are. I'm a stone cold killer, and I thought about it. I almost dropped you, and I didn't. And I, I don't know. I, not that many movies get the, I don't know, the this balance of the, the the sexual gender politics of their relationship, and also the law and order dynamics of their relationship. Like it's such a great beat, uh, and again, it goes in so well to that wonderful stinger, obviously. Uh, that that moment of her kind of recognizing having her cake and eating yeah, it yeah, buddy, too. I yeah. am gonna help you break back out, but I'm never gonna acknowledge. Like this is just you're a nice guy. I understand that you're not a bad person just because you do crime. I am gonna help you get out of here by sitting you in the same van with this dude. But uh, I don't know. For me, that the real moment is the you win with the leg shooting. Like, it's so it's so good. Mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah, I love it too. 
All right, let's render a verdict on out of sight. Shelf or trash? What do you say, Arthur? Shelf. Mm. Uh, I, I think it's an easy uh, easy shelf. I, I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's an interesting spot in Soderbergh's filmography, and uh, I think it'd be easily to revisit. So uh, I appreciate it quite a bit. So, yeah. Very good, very good. What do you say, Dalton? Shelf or trash? Yeah, I mean, like, like I said, there's nothing new in this, uh, and a lot of the characters are kind of broadly sketched, but I think James Foley and Karen Sisko are, are so interesting as characters, and Clooney and, and Jennifer Lopez are so great together. That, that that really does elevate the film into being something worth savoring and appreciating and remembering. So, yeah, I, I think it is uh, absolutely shelfable. It's, you know, not doing anything uh, totally new, but it is doing something that I love, which is spinning a lot of genre plates at once and getting them to line up and overlap in really kind of creative and interesting ways. So, yeah, I not every film has to do something new to earn its place uh, on the shelf or in our, in our minds and hearts. Sometimes just doing things we've seen done well and in interesting ways enough. Very good, very good. Um, if it's one of those genre plates happens to be film noir, it always goes on my shelf. Yeah. So shelf <laughs> for sure, because I love me that stuff, and this is great. So uh, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts on Out of Sight. Um, I believe we're going to do another show. If if your contract is still valid, I think um, it is. I I believe. Let me consult the elder gods. <laughs> they say yes. All right. Well. Uh, yes, we still have him. Let me see. I've I've got this letter addressed right here. Let me see. Oh no, it's it's, it's a note. It says to Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. That must mean something, right? I I guess so. We'll have to figure it out. Well, if you know uh, what Julie Newmar meant, uh, you can find us on Twitter at good underscore trash. You can send your long form long form feedback to the show uh, at goodtrashgenrecast at gmail dot com. Uh, if you want to help us keep the lights on, it's patreon.com forward slash GTM. Uh, and finally, you've listened to a podcast before. Uh, rate, review, subscribe. We're not on Spotify, but we're on the other two. Uh, so do the thing. Help us win the points, I guess. Uh, so yeah, help us. I don't know. What is Julie Newmar talking about? It must mean something. Very cool, I'm, very cool. I can't keep this shtick up. I'm very excited to watch it. It's going to be movie. great. I've already done some preparation watching, and it's going to be a blast, dear listener. Uh, buckle up, Buttercup, because we're getting into drag. You can uh, watch along with us. It is streaming on the Netflix, so uh, why oh, give it a watch? Along with like a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race, if you want to you know, do that, too. So uh, you keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you.